I will be reading the continuation of the foreword. As she looked out from her lonely prison, rarely a day passed without the sound of another cell door slamming, another lock snapping shut as the fiction of the fairy tale was further embellished in the public's mind. The publication in 1991 of a series of books and articles celebrating the couple's 10th wedding anniversary served to weld new bars to her jail. She felt the lid was closing in on her, a friend recalled. Unlike other women, she did not have the freedom to leave with her children. Like a prisoner condemned for a crime she did not commit, Diana had a crying need to tell the world the truth about her life, the distress she felt and the ambitions she nurtured. Her sense of injustice was profound. Quite simply, she wanted the liberty to speak her mind. the opportunity to tell people the whole story of her life and to let them judge her accordingly she felt somehow that if she was able to explain her story to the people her people they could truly understand her before it was too late let them be my judge she said confident that her public would not criticize her as harshly as the royal family or the mass media her desire to explain what she saw as the truth of her case was matched by a nagging fear that at any moment her enemies in the palace would have her classified as mentally ill and locked away this was no idle fear when her panorama interview was screened in 1995 the then armed forces minister nicholas soames a close friend and a former equerry to prince charles describing her as displaying the advanced stages of paranoia how then could she smuggle her message to the outside world reviewing britain's social landscape she saw that there were very few outlets of her story for even today though wounded and humbled the monarchy exerts a powerful and compelling influence over the mass media just 6 years ago as diana her true story was being prepared the royal family's ascendancy was almost total the house of windsor was then even more than now the most influential and feared family in the land credible media outlets the bbc itv and so called quality newspapers would have had a collective attack of the vapors if she had signaled that she wanted them to publish the truth of her position again If her story had appeared in the tabloid press it would have been dismissed by the establishment so much exaggerated rubbish So what to do within her small circle of intimate friends there was sufficient alarm for several to fear for Diana's safety It was known that she had made a number of half-hearted suicide attempts in the past and as her desperation grew there were genuine fears that she could take her own life worries tempered by a balancing belief that ultimately her love for her children could never take her down that path in the winter of 1990 when i first started researching a biography of the princess of wales i knew little of these concerns as both a journalist and author i had been writing about the royal family since 1982 the year after Diana's marriage to the prince of wales and had built up a number of contacts inside the various palaces in the circles of the princes of wales and the duchess of york 
Earlier in 1990, I had written Diana's Diary, a lifestyle book about the princess which I was later to learn had been well received by her. During my researches for this book, it became clear that all was not well with the royal marriage. Diana's friends and former members of staff making dark hints about the princess's unhappiness. While these allusions were intriguing, there were nothing new. Speculation about the Wales's marriage had been growing ever since a visit to Portugal in 1987 during which they had insisted on staying in separate suites. For my latest book, a full-scale biography of the princess, I set about trying to uncover the facts surrounding Diana's life. I was soon to learn the painful truth. Meanwhile, meanwhile, as Diana continued to consider the dilemma of her life inside the royal family, she noticed that a series of articles I had written for the Sunday Times, notably on the furore over Prince Charles's offer of a party at High Grove for her 30th birthday, as well as the departure of the prince's private secretary, Sir Christopher Airy, were sympathetic to her cause. She was now aware that I was piecing together her life story, that I was an independent writer, neither wedded to Fleet Street nor, more importantly, in the thrall of Buckingham Palace, issues of some importance as she considered her future course of action. In any event, after some initial and expected hesitation, she decided to unlock the door to the inner sanctum of her psyche. I was asked to become the conduit of her true story. There was one major stumbling block. The arrival of an author at the gates of Kensington Palace would immediately set alarm bells ringing, especially as Prince Charles was still in residence. Just as Martin Bashir, the television journalist who later interviewed the princess for the BBC Panorama program, was to discover subterfuge was the only way to circumvent an ever-vigilant royal system. In November 1995, when he conducted his interview, he smuggled his BBC camera crew into Kensington Palace on a quiet Sunday. For my part, Diana was interviewed by proxy using a trusted intermediary so that if the princess was asked, did you meet Andrew Morton, she could answering with a resounding no. I submitted endless written questions about every aspect of her life, starting naturally with her childhood. In return, she answered as best she could, speaking into a rather ancient tape recorder in the quiet of her private sitting room. While it was an imperfect method which gave no opportunity for immediate follow-up questions, very quickly a picture emerged of a life which was totally at variance with the accepted image. As a writer who had spent much, much of his life working in a royal world where evasion, equivocation and secrecy were the official currency, at first I was stunned by Diana's candor and disbelieving of the astonishing story she revealed. In the first interview session, although lots of questions had been prepared beforehand, once the tape recorder was switched on, her words spilled out of her almost without interruption and with her barely pausing for breath. It was a great release. For the first time in her royal life, she felt empowered. At last, her voice was about to be heard, 
the truth was about to be told. Tell Noah her nickname for me to make sure the story gets out. She would say to trusted confidence, disappointing that the process of writing and researching a book could not happen overnight. Her choice of nickname revealed something about her gentle sense of humor. It had arisen after I was described in an American newspaper as a notable author and historian. She was tickled by such pompous depiction and from then on always used the acronym NOAA than referring to me. It became a running joke. In some respects, her acceleration at unburdening herself of her secret was little different from that of others who have emerged from an institution which exists almost by definition by a mixture of myth and magic. Over the years, I have interviewed numerous former royal employees who have felt a sense of relief that at last they were able to tell the story of what life is really like inside the Buckingham Palace. It is a form of confession. I was at the end of my tether. I was desperate, Diana argued during her panorama interview. I think I was so fed up with being seen as someone who was a basket case because I am a very strong person and I know that causes complications in the system that I live in. For Diana, however, the act of talking about her life provoked many memories, some cheerful, others almost too difficult to put into words. Like a gust of wind across a field of corn, her moods endlessly fluctuated. While she was candid, even whimsical, about her eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, and her half-hearted suicide attempts, she was at her lowest ebb when speaking about her days inside the royal family, the dark ages as she referred to them. Time and again, she emphasized her profound sense of destiny, a belief that she would never become queen, as well as her awareness that she had been singled out for a special role. She knew in her heart that it was her fate to travel a road where the monarchy was a secondary to her true vocation. With hindsight, her words have a remarkable prescience. At times, she was amusingly animated, particularly when talking about her short life as a bachelor girl. She spoke wistfully about her romance with Prince Charles, sadly about her unhappy childhood and with some passion about the effect Camilla Parker Bowles had had on her life. Indeed, she was so anxious not to be seen as paranoid or foolish as she had been so often told by her husband's friends that she showed us several letters and postcards from Mrs. Parker Bowles to Prince Charles to prove that she was not imagining her relationship. These billets doux, passionate, loving and full of suppressed longing left my publisher and I in absolutely no doubt that Diana's suspicions were correct. Nevertheless, as we were informed by a leading libel lawyer, under stringent British law, the fact that you know something to be true does not allow you to say it. Much to Diana's annoyance, and in spite of overwhelming evidence, I was never able to write that Prince Charles and Camilla Parker Bowles were lovers. Instead, I had to allude to a secret friendship which had cast a long shadow over the royal marriage. I used the opportunity of later interview sessions to fill in many of the gaps which were inevitably left by the first bruisingly honest and virtually seamless narrative of her life story. 
it took some weeks to appreciate just how powerful was her desire to speak out and with hindsight some of my questions were so obviously out of step with the reality of her life and that it was inevitable that some of her answers were monosyllabic or simply uncomprehending indeed many events i referred to in my later questions which the media had deemed significant had little actual relevance to her life it meant that the whole interviewing process was very much a hit and miss process trawling through existing material in the hope of hitting on a subject which might spark a response and generate a fresh insight just as the questioning was haphazard so was the process of gathering the information i was often told at very short notice that diana had a window of opportunity to answer questions i would then quickly work out a series of queries relating to her life pass them on and hope for the best if her mood was engaged and interested and the questions relevant then her answers were revealing and penetrating nonetheless it was a draining process for her the taped sessions rarely lasting much more than an hour at any one time after the tape recorder was switched off sometimes prematurely if a member of staff was lurking and the conversation continued with only a discreetly placed notepad present to jot down relevant material as i was working at one remove i had to second guess her moods and act accordingly as a rule of thumb mornings were times when she was at her most articulate and energetic particularly if prince charles was absent those interview sessions were the most productive diana speaking with a breathless haste as she poured out her story she could be unnervingly blithe even when talking about the most intimate and difficult periods of her life when she first talked about her suicide attempts i naturally needed to know a great deal about when and where they had occurred i subsequently submitted a raft of specific questions on the subject when they were presented to her she treated it as a bit of joke he's pretty well written my obit- obituary she said to her interlocutor end of my portion the next portion will be re- read by the next reader